1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com/pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author Dina Mangestu discusses his new novel, All Our Names. Then PW Reviews editor Annie Carino dishes on celebrity books.
0: But first, we've got something special for you. Brian McDonald is here in the office to bring us an exclusive preview of the upcoming book Con. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Mark and Rose. How's everybody doing today?
1: Doing very well. Thank you. It's great to have you here and nice to have you in the office. Always a treat to have people come by and pay us a visit. So tell us a little bit about BookCon. What is it? When is it? Where is it?
2: Sure. Uh, BookCon is a new consumer-facing book event. It's Saturday, May 31st, at the Javits Center in New York City. It's a collaboration between ReadPop. ReadPop is the organization that runs New York Comic Con and various pop culture shows, and Book Expo America, which is a long-standing trade show that's been a big player in the book industry for a long time. So what we're doing is bringing the two uh, organizations together to collaborate and put forward a really nice fan-facing celebration of books.
0: So it seems like BEA is for uh, industry professionals and, and booksellers. Uh, it's a way for them to, to to come and see what's coming out. But it seems like with, with BookCon, you're obviously opening it up to local readers uh, and fans. How did that come about?
2: Well, I think it's a natural progression. Um, there's more and more interest in books and content, and you know the the thing the thing that we've noticed, Mark, over the years with with read pop events and the the comic shows, and we even do some video game shows. Like people that are engaging in things on their own, have it be books, video games, comics, film. They like to get together. You know, live events are really are something that's really interesting and. I believe as we go more digital and, and, you know, kind of communicating electronically more and more, it's important to see faces and, you know, meet like-minded fans, meet authors, meet content creators. Um, Seems like that's just a gap that that should be filled in our mind. Mm -hmm. So this is basically Comic-Con for books. I guess it's a nice way to put it, Yeah. I come from the science
1: fiction fantasy side of things. Cool. We're about to celebrate the 75th Worldcon. So I'm very familiar with this idea of people getting together to talk about books. But Worldcons tend to be, you know, four or five or 6,000 people. You're talking right. about something much bigger than that.
3: A
2: little bit bigger. I mean, I think our ideal number for, for consumers and fans in the Javits Center on, the th- on May 31st would be to, I'd say, probably 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. That would be insanely busy, but insanely busy is good and fun and gives a good vibe. Can you talk a little bit about what you have planned for the uh, for that Saturday? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um, well, first things first, uh, the content is really leading the charge for us. Um, we have relationships through BEA, through Book Expo, the, the trade piece of this, um, with all the major publishers here in the city, and they've been really, really supportive in bringing big name authors, um, samples of some of the content we have. Um, John Grisham will be interviewed by Carl Hyacin which is kind of a really, really cool pairing. Uh, Stan Lee is coming for a panel. Uh, Cassa- Cassandra Clare, Holly Black uh, will be appearing as well. And then, uh, you know, so a lot of kind of traditional type author stuff but then we have a lot of fun things going on we're having a, a kickoff party the night of the 30th uh for this is where i leave you uh, the film is coming out uh, later i believe in the fall but we're going to get a sneak preview and a panel discussion with not only the author jonathan Trupper, but we'll also have tina fey jason bateman and the director sean levy so um you know we'll have the panel discussion show some sneak peek and then a, the happy hour after and then um you know the other kind of fun, different things that you may not see elsewhere, is that we're lucky enough to have Brandon Stanton from Humans of New York coming to do a stage presentation, um, Mario Batali as well. I'm forgetting a lot of good names, but uh-huh. they'll, well, sure they'll come to me later.
0: <laughs> well, so tell us what uh, Tina Fey and Jason Bateman will be doing. I mean, you said they're going to be introducing, uh, well, Why? Well, I mean, obviously Tina Fey, because, well, she's, she, she had a huge bestseller uh, with the book two years ago, and uh, what about Jason Bateman?
2: they're playing the leads in the film adaptation of this is Ah, where i leave you yep and sean levy is is directing so it's it's a nice melding together right and so tell me again what they'll be doing Uh, we're going to have a panel discussion with the author um about the film adaptation of this is where i leave you so we'll have some some clips and they'll just kind of talk through the creative process talk through the story um that sort of thing. So it'll be really nice for, for fans t- in, in the trade to get a nice early look at this. And, you know, the, the book itself, a little backstory. This is where I leave you. Obviously, an incredible book, but uh, probably four or five years ago, um, that was a buzz panel selection at BEA. So it's nice to kind of... Uh, close the loop where the, the book launched at the trade show, and then at the, the consumer-facing event, we're going to have some, some film footage. So, it's, it's a nice marriage.
0: it so sounds wonderful. So, tell me now, with the hours of the event, and do you know where it will be, and will the, uh, uh, the attendees be able to walk around uh, BEA, or at least, I, from what I understand, it's going to be a limited portion of the, uh, of the expo hall that they'll be able to walk around?
2: Right, right. So the event will start at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning, on May 31st, and it'll run. The show floor will stay open from 9 to 3, and then the panel content will continue on until 6 p.m. Um, and we'll, when fans walk in, there'll be a very dedicated area. Um, it'll be very clear that BookCon is BookCon. There'll be their own signage, marketing material, directionals, etc. And we've sectioned off the show floor where fans will have their own area um, you know so everything in that area the show floor will be catering to them now there mm-hmm. will be a, obviously there's a wider show floor that'll have uh, various kind of business to business type things where mm-hmm. it's just just not really uh, suited for for fans so to speak. You know, the the experience is not so much for them so we've consolidated the show floor to to make it kind of a very concentrated day for them
0: mm-hmm. and let's talk more a little bit about the signings the various book signings
2: yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, I don't have a, a extensive autographing list in front of me cuz that's still that's still coming in. Um sure. I know I know RL Stein will be signing um Cassandra Clare and Holly Black, um <laughs> Carrie Elluz, I believe I'm saying that correctly, but he was a star of The Princess Bride and he has mm-hmm. a he has a memoir coming oh, out. Right. So, yep, yeah, so so he'll be signing and um there's plenty of others, but we're still just kind of right in that period before we get the full-out autographing list. Great.
1: And how do people get in? Is, is this a, a sort of thing where people buy tickets in advance, or you just kind of show up on the day?
2: Yeah, um, definitely tickets in advance. We obviously will keep our registration desks open for sales, but people can just buy on our website, thebookcon.com. Uh, tickets are $30, and that ticket gets you show floor, panels, kind of the, the whole nine yards.
1: Sounds very exciting.
0: Brian,
2: thank you so much for
0: talking with us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Dina Mangestu will tell us how his works of fiction reveal some painful truths about war and the modern world. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today, we've got Dino Mangestu on the line. He's an award-winning novelist whose new book is All Our Names. Dino, thank you so much for joining us.
3: No, thank you for having me.
1: So tell us about this novel.
3: It's a story um, that takes place half in in Kampala, in Uganda, in the early 1970s. Um, and other half of the novel takes place in a small college town in the midwest um, named laurel also around the exact same time and the novel is narrated between two different voices um one is a a young man that we um can call isaac and the other is a american woman named helen who's a social worker the novel oscillates back and forth between these two landscapes and these two voices
1: and a part of the novel was published as a short story, The Paper Revolution. So which came first? Was the story developed into the novel or excerpted from it?
3: Oh, the story was definitely excerpted from it. Um, I've never been able to write a short story in my life, and so um, I do tend to write novels that are that are rather fragmented and, and oftentimes take place um, across different timelines and that often have a nonlinear structure. So sometimes... I get lucky and um, an and editor is able to make a little excerpt out of it, but otherwise, I've, I've never been very good to make um, one single story like that.
0: Your books look at the various aspects of the African diaspora in the United States. What, what draws you to these topics?
3: I, I mean, you know, the, the most obvious answer would be that even here is my own life. Um, my family came from Ethiopia in 1980 when I was two years old to the United States, and so that those stories oftentimes are are direct reflections of, you know, my own concerns and my own family's narrative. Um, But also at the same time, you know, you recognize that there are um, absences or gaps or holes in in our cultural imagination or in our narratives. And so you are drawn to those gaps, you're drawn to those empty spaces, and you you try to see if you can't carve out a little room for yourself within those empty spaces, if you can't um, make characters and stories that are familiar to you, but perhaps unfamiliar to the reader. Um, if You can't argue for your own existence in this, you know, sort of American landscape that's still deeply attached to an African um, mood as well. Mm.
1: And in in another interview, you said that you write American literature, not immigrant literature. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I thought it was a really interesting comparison.
3: Yeah, because I think, you know, we tend to use the sort of um, immigrant literature category which has. Um sort of burgeed as a as a as a framework fairly recently, as a way of um oftentimes signaling that these are stories that are from the outside or that these are stories that are charged by a certain ethnicity and And of course, you know my, my narratives definitely are they because they, they are stories of of African characters who come to the u s but to to push them to that side is to somehow also say that they don't belong to the sort of category of American narratives or American literature or just literature, of course, in general. When you think of the fact that so much of our our country's history, the very founding of our country's history, you know, begins with that idea of migration. Um, To summarize our our stories or to make a somewhat arbitrary distinction between American literature and English literature or to find ways of factoring them off, I think is to do a great injustice to what our what our cultural history and narrative is possible
0: so uh, just to talk about your upbringing a little bit you and your mother left wartime ethiopia when you were two and and moved to peoria illinois to join your father how did your family end up there
3: i'm still not completely positive um we my father left ethiopia in 1978 just before i was born and um he fled before we did because he, he you know, felt like he really needed to know her to um to preserve his safety. And so by, it took us two years for us to leave the country and by that time my father had made his way from from Ethiopia to Italy to the United States and had settled in Peoria and was working at Caterpillar, um and had kind of constructed this very all American life that was waiting for us to uh, to drop in on. Her.
1: So there was a lot going on politically in both Uganda and the U.S. during the 1970s, which is when All Our Names is set. Uh, Did you learn anything that surprised you when you were researching the time period in those two different places?
3: I I wish I could say that I did a lot of research. Um, I I, I, I did a lot of work on Uganda when I was uh, working there as a journalist in 2007, and so I traveled there and I spent a lot of time um reading about its history and reading about its political climate um both pre-colonial and, and post-colonial um and a lot of those things obviously you know you retain them in your imagination and you retain the images that you experience when you're there as a journalist Um and so they they worked their way back into the story when i began writing this novel really quickly and i was i, I never felt tempted to to go back and try to um, you know, research a particular historical character or or narrative because I was also creating a Uganda that was very much the Uganda of my characters. It was a a Uganda that's narrated from the point of view of of one man who comes to Uganda with the aspirations of of becoming a writer. Um, And then as for the early 1970s, you know, again, like these are, uh, what I was always interested in is how you take the sort of political climate of a particular time and Bring it down to the life of an individual character, so you know, i I'm, have I'm not I'm not that interested in trying to replicate history so much as I am. I'm um, trying to figure out how my characters are responding to to the climate and to the times that they live in.
1: And certainly, at that time in in the U.S. Um, in the 1960s, 1970s, there was a lot going on uh, in civil rights and race relations, and this then you have this relationship, this very personal sort of reflection of that between Isaac and Helen. Um, how do you explore those tensions through the the lens of an interracial relationship?
3: You know, I mean, that was that was partly why I why I chose that time period. It's um, you know we went from the sort of dramatic emergence of of the civil rights movement from the 50s into the early 60s and a lot of enormous legislative gains were made during that time and then you know post 1968 there's um sort of i think uh a frustration and a disappointment you know martin Luther king was assassinated there were a lot of race riots across the country and this lingering sense that for all the gains of civil rights movement, there's, um, you know, a persistent sense of discrimination and economic disparity that continued to haunt the country. And so Isaac and Helen are, are an aspiring couple um, in that time period where there may not be overt forms of discrimination anymore, but at the same time, you know, when you when you take all that progress and you, when you force people to look at um, complexity of an interracial interracial relationship, you can see how much of those anxieties remain, how uncomfortable people still are with seeing um, a couple like that enter into the public sphere. And so, you know, that was one way of, of, of showing um, that while a lot has been done, there's still enormous challenges left. Now, you studied
0: at Georgetown, and then you got your MFA from Columbia. How did that shape, both those places shape your writing? And were you writing at the time at
3: Georgetown? Definitely. Um, you know, when I began at Georgetown, I, I did so with the desire that maybe I'd go into politics or international affairs, but um, really knowing that I wanted to become a writer, um, that that was probably the most essential thing to me. And I spent most of my time in college um, trying to do just that. You know, I wasn't deeply invested in, in the traditional collegiate experience. I spent a lot of my time in cafes and in bookstores reading by myself. And that was perhaps the most profound effect, um, that it helped me carve out a a very solitary space for myself and let me be comfortable um, with that solitude. And, you know, doing an MFA, I think, um, supports that, you know, you find a community of people who who all feel the same way, who are engaged with the same craft and with the same um, strange, lonely process of trying to become a writer.
0: And you've also now been the
3: recipient of nearly a dozen awards. How has that affected your writing? I, I would like to think that it doesn't, um, you know, because when you, at least for me, when I, think I have a book that I'm working on, the, the process is so it's so long and often so tedious um, and so frustrating and at times rewarding, that um, you don't really have that much time to, to think about the things that are outside of it, you know, I think. Sitting down to work every day requires um a, a certain immersion in a particular world, and most of what you've done beforehand or what people have said beforehand um really slip away in that in those moments of actual writing you know outside of that of course there's um you know the sort of public side of you that is very grateful for all the things that have been given to you in terms of the recognition, and those things make it easier and, of course, um, grant you that sort of privileged space to keep writing. But when you're sitting down to work, you're, um, you know, every day you start from scratch by and large, and nothing makes it better. Um, Some things can definitely make it worse, but definitely nothing makes it better.
0: And I I take it your MacArthur grant probably made it a little bit
3: better. Not worse. It, makes, it, it definitely definitely does not make the worse, um, right. and it doesn't. You know, um, and it does, you know, but it doesn't add any sort of anxiety or extra pressure. The macarths is sort of an affirmation for me. It's, it says that um, you know what you do um, is, is important, and that it you know keeps people interested in, in, in the stories that you decide to tell, even though you may times feel like those stories are are not that relevant or that important to the culture or society this at least, you know, says, OK, actually, they are.
1: So let's talk nonfiction a little bit. You've written a number of articles and essays for various magazines. You mentioned you've traveled a lot in various countries in Africa. Um, how how has that influenced your fiction writing?
3: Um, you know, more and more with, with, with each novel, those, those experiences as a journalist find their way into my, into my stories. Um, I never plan on it, or I never, I never set out to do a story with the idea that someday I may work those narratives into my fiction. Um, But inevitably, I've always found that I'm left with with characters and images um, that continue to haunt me and that find their way into my stories. And so, you know, you take and steal from all sorts of places. So um, one of the characters in the novel, Joseph, um, owes a certain debt to to a colonel in eastern Congo that I spend time with. Um, definitely the landscape of, of you know, these villages and places in Africa are an enormous step to my travels throughout the continent. And I don't think I'd be able to, to imagine those places as intimately had I not traveled through them. Um, you know, spending time with young soldiers who, who are fighting um, very hard to make a better life for themselves and their country um, you know, played a big role in my imagining of these you know, aspiring revolutionaries in Kampala.
0: Dinal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dino Manguestu. You can find his book, All Our Names, in stores right now. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW Reviews editor Annie Carino tells you about some hot new books by and about celebrities, so stay tuned.
1: Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews editor Annie Carano is here with some hot new and forthcoming celebrity
4: books. Hi, Annie. Hello. I'm here to talk about celebrity books. And as usual, there's a lot of books written by celebrities coming out this spring. And now the thing is with these types of books is we all know they sell a lot of copies, but the real test of success is more a question of who buys them. Is it just going to be diehard fans, or is the book good enough to read uh, for a wider readership? So I'd say the ultimate success story then in recent years is Tina Fey's Bossy Pants, which sold as of today. According to our Nielsen scan, over one point two million copies, and wow. that doesn 't even include ebooks so wow yep yeah, we've got a couple of contenders here for su- that sort of success i think Uh-huh. Um, what's got? So I'll start with my favorite, which or my personal favorite, which is John Waters' new book *Car And for those of you who don't know who John Waters is, you should. He's great. Um, he's a filmmaker whose movies include cult classics such as *Hairspray* pink flamingos and crybaby um he described i think he describes himself as the pope of trash as in trashy <laughs> right. uh, and the book described him as america's most beloved weirdo so his book and he's written uh several memoirs i think the last one was role models which was i i loved um uh, This is a travel log of sorts in which he hitchhikes across America from Baltimore to San Francisco uh, with a cardboard sign that says, I'm not a psycho. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a hilarious idea in and of itself. I'd Um, pick him up. Why not? Yeah, well, he's he's got that weird mustache he's a little creepy looking but like in a good way Uh um and I guess it's like which is scarier the person picking him up or who he gets in the car with Mm -hmm. you know um and also keep in mind he was in Hairspray he played the flasher so (laughs) (laughs) but I think a lot of people ended up knowing who he was and this was two years ago and people just started reporting that they had picked like on social media and stuff that oh they had picked John Waters up on the highway mm. um, and so he made that into a book and it's not exactly what you would think it's not just about um, the travel per se and it's more of a mix so he starts with Two novella-type things where he describes best and worst-case scenarios, mm-hmm. uh, going on to the trip, and then the final third is what actually happens. And you know, surprisingly, I was very curious. It's it's almost like a great idea for a reality TV show. Sure. Uh, and how does that translate into a book? And I think he did a really good job with this one. And I'd actually say the first two thirds, which are are the fictional ones are the best. Hmm. And so is that out already or it's coming out? That's coming out in June and it's published by FSG. Mm. All right. So definitely one to keep an eye out for. And then next up we have Marlo Thomas. It ain't over till it's over. For those of you who don't know who Marlo Thomas is, she's an actress. um, And I think she's best known as the TV star of, of That Girl, the TV show. Yeah, definitely. And the children's oh, yeah. album "Free to Be You and Me." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Mark, you would probably know. <laughs> I
0: was. Just, she says that given my age. <laughs> no, no, no.
4: <laughs> um, but no, given that it's your cat, it's your cat. Right, right. <laughs> so she's written a bunch of books. I think six, which have been bestsellers, and her message is usually inspirational, and that's definitely the case with this one. Um, Now, in the book, she profiles 60 women from all across the country uh, who have turned their life around in some remarkable way. Uh, So, for example, there's a woman who worked for IBM, for 25 years and then decided to quit and start a massage parlor or there's a teacher who a music teacher who one day had the urge to paint her wall a wall in her house with lots of colors and that actually turned into uh, her career she became a professional artist and now she sells paintings for as much as hundred grand apiece. So there are a lot of stories. And the basic premise behind all of them is that it's never too late to reinvent yourself. And for this reason, I think the book will speak to older women who are around the retirement age, moving towards a new chapter in their lives. Uh,
1: Usually when I hear uh, somebody say that a book is inspirational, that means there's a religious
4: component. Is that the case with this? Or is it really just meant to inspire? It's meant to inspire. Uh, there's, yeah, there's no real religious component. There might, there are a couple little chapters where I think religion factors into the stories with the women, but mm-hmm. for the most part, it, I mean, it actually ranges. There's a ton of different stories, but most of the women profiled are in their fifties, sixties, or seventies. Although there are a few who are younger. Mm-hmm. Um, the next book is another great one. It's by Robin Roberts. It's her memoir, which is published by Grand Central in April. Robin Roberts is the anchor of Good Morning America. And before that, she was a sportscaster for ESPN. Um, And her, her memoir offers a real intimate look into her recent struggle with bone marrow cancer. Um, and it starts in 2012 from the time of her diagnosis, and the, the name of the disease is actually, or it's MDS, and it required a transplant, which she ended up getting from her sister. But the book recounts her recovery all the way to her triumphant return to GMA, which was the same week that GMA reached the top ratings and beat out the Today Show. Um, And she also talks about a lot of the help she got from friends and colleagues around along the way. But at the real heart of this book is her mother, who passed away right before Roberts uh, started treatment. Um, And actually, the book title comes from something her mother used to say, and it's Everybody's Got Something. Uh, and there's a particularly touching afterward in where she writes a letter to her mother, and I have a quote that I thought was really nice. It's, Your devotion, your faith, your kitchen table wisdom were the never-waning weapons in the arsenal fight of my life. Mm. It sounds bittersweet, but she brings humor into it, and her charisma really shines through.
0: And she's also the author. I know... Uh I think it was two thousand seven, two thousand eight. She, she came out with a book called From the Heart: uh, Seven Rules to Live By, and uh, just last year, or two years ago, it was something called My Story, My Song. It's a mother-daughter reflections on life and faith uh, uh, with with I believe it was her mother. So that was so she's she's uh, she's been doing a couple of books in the uh, I would say self help, but the inspirational categories you had just mentioned.
4: Yes, and I think this one is different from the other ones in that. It it really looks in, into the process of recovery, or the treatment and the struggle with disease, like the whole mm-hmm. inner process, you know. Right. And like the, you hear about her sisters who decorated the room for her right before she started treatment, and then yeah. they out, they were singing "Ain't No Mountain High Enough," and it's just a it's a really intimate look into that whole experience.
0: Sure. So is uh, uh, the, the next one you have on the list also inspirational? or
4: uh, No. Departure? The next one's the cat one. Oh, <laughs> let's talk cats. Okay, first of all, I must say that this was on our top ten announcements um, for memoir, in our top ten, Uh-oh. which Louisa wrote. Now, at the time, I we were... Preparing for that issue, I walked into Louisa's office and I saw that she was watching YouTube's of this like overweight cat on this man's shoulder, and I was thinking to myself, "What is, what is she doing?" <laughs> now I realize. Uh, why this made the top 10. It got a starred review. Um, It's actually been the most read review on our website for the past couple weeks. And what's the title? The title of the book is The World According to Bob and it's by James Bowen. He's not the celebrity, but rather the cat he found is the celebrity. Uh, And they have gained YouTube acclaim, of course. Uh, And the first book that they wrote about or that he wrote about Bob was called the street cat named Bob. It's playing words. Uh so in this one, you know what we really liked about this one was that it's both for cat lovers. It's got the cutesy, Bob's quirky behavior certainly, but it also talks a lot about the realities of homelessness because when uh they when the author found Bob um, he was both of them, I guess, were homeless. So Bob was a stray cat, and uh, Bowen was living on the street, trying to make music. He was a street music performer. So then they were profiled in a newspaper, and this is all in England. And now, like Sir Paul McCartney's coming to visit them, like they're a huge sensation. So the, what really makes this book stand out is that you know it's it is about a cat, but it's also he uses this cat to talk about the realities of homelessness and drug addicts and you know it's it's got a lot of humility in it
0: sure well it was funny about you know, cat and 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 dog books uh, It reminds me of one uh, three four years ago called Dewey, the small town library cat who touched the world uh, and that Ooh. was a, that was a big bestseller as well and uh, so uh uh this one sounds uh along the
4: same lines yes and if you see the book i just i'd just like to note that bob lots of people have knit bob scarfs <laughs> <laughs> and so and recently bob was here in new york he there they live in england i don't know if i mentioned that but and there was a picture of him right outside the Flatiron building which is right near where we are so, so we missed so it we missed it we could have gotten a paw
2: autograph
1: well Andy thank you so much for that roundup these definitely sound like some books to look out for no problem thank you
0: and that's it for today's show I'm Mark Rotella
1: and I'm Rose Fox and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio
0: you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PW Radio and on iTunes available for you to listen absolutely free Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks so much for listening.
1: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.